Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell, a craft of real brewery making the world's most racist IPAs. Curtis Yarvin, also known as Manchester Moldbug, is among the most interesting countercultural thinkers to have appeared in the Anglophone world in quite some time. He's an American blogger and tech entrepreneur who founded Urbit in 2002 and, more relevantly for today's episode, the blog Unqualified Reservations in 2007. He stopped updating Unqualified Reservations in 2013, later starting a Substack newsletter called Grey Mirror of the Nihilist Prince in 2020. His views are anti-egalitarian, anti-democratic, cameralist and monarchist, and he's a high-speed dispensary of neologisms and new terms. One such term is the cathedral, a concept which he lays out in his 2021 blog post, A Brief Explanation of the Cathedral, which we're covering in this episode. Now, for the obligatory bit of shilling. We've got a Patreon account, and we'd love it if you'd support us. We've also got a Discord server, link in the show notes. You can tell us there how badly we've butchered Yarvin's ideas here. So, if you're ready to understand why government, academia, and journalists all march in lockstep, then listen on. Enjoy. Yeah, we need to lean even more into amateurishness, I think. <laughs> Things in the world are just getting too polished. What we need to do is have more long pauses between saying things, clear our throats more often into the microphone, cough into the microphone more often. Instead of me noise-gating things, maybe I'll, I'll try to do an inverse noise-gate. So I'll just make background noise as loud as possible and then try to block out any of our speech. I would just introduce new forms of background noise. Yeah. I could probably EQ this to make it a lot muddier. There are so many things I could do. To, to make the podcast sound worse. If you could not merely not read the books that we're meant to be reading for episodes, but somehow reverse read them, read something which is just the polar opposite of what we're meant to be reading, and then you can talk about that, and then I'll just read something unrelated and talk about that. There are a lot of ways that we could make this much worse. How can we just make this as bad as we can? It's just a worse listener experience ever. Well, there, so there are easy ways. This instead of two hours of us talking about Curtis Yarvin, this could be two hours of harsh noise. That's one. Yeah. That's one way. This could just be the brown note for two hours. So you listen to it and you just you lose control of your bowels and shit yourself <laughs> for two hours. It could That'd just be, be a good episode. Um, uh, jazz. Uh, what was that? Um, jazz. Jazz. Saxophone. You mean because what? Well, yeah. Hours, if you're an Evolian, then it could just be jazz, which was the worst. It could just hours. be jazz. The absolute. <laughs> <laughs> this could be just for Evolians. This could be an unpleasant podcast tailor-made for Evolians who hate jazz. It's just two hours of Duke Ellington. <laughs> just something really, really inoffensive. Not even the weird shit. So we're talking about Curtis Yarvin today. Yeah, we'll, we'll work on those good ideas of making this aggressively unpleasant. But in the meantime, let's talk about Curtis Yarvin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll pick that up later. Um, yeah, interesting. How did you hear about Curtis Yelvin? Uh, he's been... So I, I, I was just on your radar. far from first Jack's just been to the Curtis Yarvin party because I think he's been blogging from like... Masturbating. Two, I think it was 2007 that Unqualified Reservations, his first blog, started. I heard about him much later than that. I think it was during uni, during like... I think it was the early 2010s I became aware of him but never read 
much of his work. It's like I skimmed it because I thought it was kind of funny that there was an American seriously arguing for monarchism. <laughs> but then I kind of forgot about him. And then we started this podcast and I, I remembered him. Yeah, the, the, the reason I was aware of him is not because I'm deep into like the dark enlightenment ecosystem or neo-reactionary stuff like that. It's just because I've always enjoyed looking for really strange points of view or strange subcultures and then reading about them. Like I sniffed him out in the same way or in the same spirit that I'd, <laughs> I'd found myself on like vor fan fiction pages. Just, just to find something really fucking weird. <laughs> I will I will say I take Curtis Yarvin a lot more seriously than Vore fan fiction. That's <laughs> Yeah. Look, I'm sure I'm sure I'll I'll make jokes about him during this episode, but I do take him seriously as a thinker. He he does come up with some conclusions that I don't really agree with. And yeah, I'll have some criticisms of of what we read of him today, but I do take the guy seriously. He's clearly really smart, revoltingly well-read, <laughs> and he's willing to entertain ideas that are deeply unpopular, to an extent because I think he just likes being in opposition to stuff. Temperamentally, he's if we up. did live in a monarchy, he probably would be arguing for just full-on liberal democracy or anarchy or something like that, but... <laughs> he combines intelligence with a willingness to entertain some strange or unpopular ideas, which makes him worth listening to and very interesting to read. Also for you, Levi, because he's, it'd be interesting for you because he has a background in computer science. I think he's, he started a PhD in computer science at, I think UC Berkeley, but dropped out because he joined mm. a, a tech startup. He also, he, yeah, right. He launched Urbit nice. as well. I forget when that was. I think early 2000s. Yeah. It was ages ago. Yeah, yeah. He's been working and, on it for a while. And I think he also had a startup which got money from Peter Thiel's Founders Fund, which, um, which basically expanded the Urbit ecosystem. I forget the name of it. Tlon or something like that. He's, he's actually quite an accomplished computer scientist as well and startup founder. The guy is really interesting. Yeah, he's super interesting. I, yeah, I haven't read a huge amount into it, but when I, after reading the article that we've read today, which is uh, The Cathedral Explained. Um, yeah, a brief explanation which of The is Cathedral, on his, published 21st January 2021. Substack. Um, yeah. I'll put a link a to his substack, substack in the show notes so people can read it for themselves because it's really short. And it's grey mirror. Oh well, spo spoiler. I think it's worth reading. I'd I'd recommend this. Yeah. So I started reading some of his other things because he's really into Bitcoin. Um, and I find that really interesting to read because there's this uh there's a subsection <laughs> <Interesting>. and maybe <laughs> anything that even mentions Bitcoin gets you interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a there's this weird thing with Bitcoin where it's like, um, the minimalist approach to it would be you know minimalist non non anti Bitcoiner, but the minimalist sort of pro-Bitcoin approach would just be something along, along the lines of this is a useful technology for storing your wealth into the future um, because it's uh, scarce and decentralized and secure. And you 
don't have to say anything more than that. You could say like it doesn't even need to become like a currency really in order for it to still be a really interesting technology that you should learn about. And then you've got like that is like almost the minimalist position that you can take. And then there's the extreme other end, which would be like it's going to transform the world in some crazy way because like money is so tied to our sense of like social cooperation and then like it intersects with the state and power structures and it's going to demonetize the US and like and then there's people who talk about like uh, people having these like ontological spiritual transformations because of the pure truth of the network and <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> you know, it's a truth. It's a truth virus, <laughs> and it makes you more. It makes you a more honest person. <laughs> Evola was completely wrong when he talked about ontological transformation via via the use of true rituals or true initiation rites. What he really meant to say was, was through the Bitcoin. understanding of the blockchain, you become you become ontologically transformed. The truth chain. It's the truth chain. So uh and then and then there's this subsection of Bitcoiners and Cypherdina Moose has like played with these ideas, which I and Breedlove has Robert Breedlove as well. Um and it's really interesting because they are they talk about like uh, and I think it's been influenced by Curtis Yarvin um, and his like part of the internet, um, basically saying like there's issues with democracy, the, the, whether it's incentive issues or around like essentially messed up, like perverse incentives between like the politicians and then using their power to be, like and their ability to print money and taxation to like buy votes and that sort of stuff. Um, so there's some Bitcoiners that are almost like they're like anti-democratic and they say Bitcoin is like helping create a kind of post-democracy world where I know there's this one idea of like network states or free city states where there is no like democratic institutions. Everything is just run on like private contracts between individuals and <laughs> and stuff like that. And then there's people like <laughs> Curtis Yarvin who's like, no, we just need a monarchy or some sort of like autocracy, but they also have Bitcoin for some reason. <laughs> yeah. His, it's really weird. His view on Bitcoin is interesting because he, he predicted its demise quite a while ago because he said that eventually or likely states will just flat out ban the ability to convert between Bitcoin and fiat currencies to try to kill it. Yeah, he's pretty wrong. <laughs> he seems pretty, to think that, that it still it still definitely could happen, but he says that one of the arguments against that happening was that he's been predicting this for ages and he keeps getting it wrong. So, so he basically says, "Take it as you will." He's inter- yeah, he's really interesting. But- After reading a brief explanation of the cathedral, I started reading his other stuff because I haven't really read. Yeah, really interesting stuff he's written since probably first year of my undergraduate degree. It's fun to come back. He uh, has has a a, a real um, logoria approach to writing. It's just a bit of verbal diarrhea. He's deeply pessimistic. Interspersed with. He's deeply. He's deeply pessimistic. Pessimist. Yeah, he's got a bit of that. Um, much of what he <laughs> seems to advocate right. for. It's it. This is not in the brief explanation of the cathedral. This is in other things he's written. And I should preface all of this by saying that I'm far from a a Curtis Yarvin scholar. I've, I would be surprised if I even read 5% of his output because this guy's prolific. But for people... Mold psychology. So to, to contextualize it, 
this guy is, along with Nick Land and a few others, I'm not sure if they accept the term, but they are associated with this movement called the the Dark Enlightenment, which is it's, <laughs> it's a masturbatory name, or the neo-reactionary movement. <laughs> and that it's dark enlightenment bro as they say for their fucking <laughs> nachos shove like nacho powder on their fucking face <laughs> crack open a pen people who, who, who identify themselves with the dark enlightenment are the sort of people that i imagine also keep talking about dark academia fashion sense which just the seems to be state. like an over like <laughs> over intellectualization of wearing fucking corduroy pants. It's like just calm down, mate. <laughs> anyway, what was I saying? <laughs> so he, he, Nick Land, and a few others are associated with this mo- this neo reactionary movement, which is anti egalitarian, anti democratic. Quite both both being accused of being both Yarvin and Land uh, have a real preoccupation with technology and how it will change the world as well. And Yarvin, in among other things, in his description of how to resist progressivism, argues more for a pass, yeah, a passive approach. So he regularly says that owning the libs or just repeatedly trying to antagonize the people he sees as the ruling class, a progressivist <laughs> ruling like, class, went to UC Berkeley, is not, just came out a fucking asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. <laughs> It's not productive because it allows progress- progressivism to have a foil or a heel, and it allows those people to <laughs> just playing the heel to say, yeah, yeah, "This yeah, is why so we good. need to go even further with progressive ideals because there exists this nasty, racist, xenophobic, homophobic, transphobic, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, group of people, which is why we need to lean even further into the progressivist project. Whereas Yavin, in many places, seems to be arguing for right-leaning people instead of fighting cultural war issues to create ways of exiting that sort of confected argument. Which definitely is aligned with his with his Urbit project. Like that's, I was about uh, to say that, yeah. Urbit yeah. is very much in keeping with that. Urbit is actually really cool. Like, I have a lot of respect for his Urbit project. Like it, for, Even just from an engineering perspective, it's really cool. Um, computer Could you offer a really cool. description of what's going on with Urbit? Like, I know what Urbit does at a very basic level, but you're also you're also a software engineer. Like, you have a much better idea of what's going on than I do. Like, when I when I see Urbit, I think, oh, that's cool, and then that's about the the level of understanding I have of it. Yeah. So essentially, like, um, so uh, there's this thing called the the there's two major network architectures um, on the internet, and are there any others other than this? There might there might be other forms other than this possible, but these are the two major types. There's uh, peer-to-peer networks, and there's uh, client-server uh, architectures. And if you imagine like and th- there are others that's like hierarchical peer-to-peer and that sort of stuff. Um, but I'll just explain those two very quickly. The client-server model is essentially like um, you have a, a node, a computer, a node, um, that is uh, responsible for compute and data storage and is like this, when we say like the server, it's the one that's processing requests. And then the client in the classic sort of like 90s web, it, the client was just like a dumb 
uh, like web page. It just like like a browser, ask for a web page, get the web page back, render the information and not do like anything other than just kind of like asking for information and sending like mutations to the server or requests and mutations to the server. Um, and like all your big tech companies are client server models. Um, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. That's fine. That's a way to, to deliver plenty of functionality and stuff to people. Um, <clears throat> but the, the alternative is like peer-to-peer network architectures like uh, the OG one before everybody learned about Bitcoin and blockchain was uh, like the torrents. In particular, like uTorrent was the big one. Um, so peer-to-peer. LimeWire, yeah, uh, Tor. LimeWire is the best place um, to accidentally download Trojans <laughs> and porn when you're just looking for MP3s <laughs> of like... Yeah, accidentally download a Trojan horse of a horse literally fucking a woman. Yeah, thanks. I just like destroyed my nine-year-old brain. Just like a horrible fucking experience <laughs> on the internet. Just, just fucking traumatizing. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, so a peer, like when you say peer to peer, what we mean is like there's not a clear distinction between when a node is acting as the client or acting as the server. They can, a single node can act as both the server, so the data storage and compute processor, like it's kind of like a matter of responsibility. Like, what responsibilities do you have? You can both act as a client, so asking for stuff of others, and as the server. Um, doing stuff for others and the classic ones are like the torrents um the other classic one is like bitcoin that's like the most um famous peer-to-peer network other than best thing ever like the internet itself yeah it's awesome yeah it's really cool um so uh urbit is like basically a project uh, to try to like get rid of the uh, the client server architecture on the web, or at least like create a, a, a decentralized alternative network, which is like peer to peer. It's like a peer to peer protocol for communicating. Like you set up these like little uh, Urbit like nodes. You can have your own little node, and you can run like the Urbit operating system, and essentially like. I think it's supposed to be like a full compute solution where you can own like basically the entire stack. So it's like you're running an OS, but this OS has like, um, uh, it has this like peer-to-peer functionality built, baked in from the ground up. And uh, when I was listening to this one person talk about it, it was really interesting. It's like, yeah, you, you can, it's a, uh, they have this uh, replay log where you can like record your, like every single transformation that you've your computer's done and like log it and then if you need to like take your computer off like AWS and redeploy it like I don't know, on your own hardware or something you can get back your node um, yeah it's really interesting I don't know a lot of the technical details sorry I can't probably say much more than that um, that is so that's much really interesting project have given yeah it's really interesting and I guess like the idea is like it, you know it's there's a class of technologies, or I, how do I put this? I think the world is becoming more and more cyberpunk, at least the world that I live in. And sometimes I just like technologies if they just seem as though they could be out of a William Gibson 
or a uh, or a um, <laughs> or a, what, what, what's the other guy's name um, who wrote Snowcraft? Neil Stevenson's uh, one of the Neil other Stevenson one or, of or, or or yeah, so Neil, sorry, excuse me, a Neil Stevenson model uh, um, novel, and yeah, Herbert is one of those things. <laughs> Whereas, like, you I just love imagine, technologies that make my yeah. life more like the Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven game. Anything that makes me uncontrollably t pose and then clip through the ground <laughs> is, is really cool in my book. So you got to respect. Uh, there's I so I don't uh, so so you got to respect Curtis. I think on the level of like uh, he he walks the talk. You know, like there are people who yeah yeah, um, yeah that's a good point. Uh, just like a sideline commentators or whatever, and um, you know don't actually go out there and do anything other than just like talk shit. Um, and Curtis, at least like he has these values. He goes out there and he expresses his point of view, uh, whether or not you like him and he sticks by it. And then he actually puts it into action through like building technology to help like bring the world that he wants to create into reality, which I think, you know, if nothing else, that's respectable. Yeah, it's cool. He's not just complaining. He's he's actually trying to construct a world or construct tools that would allow the sort of world he wants to come into being. So despite like maybe the, the pessimism... Another one of my, yeah. my big influences. <laughs> like Osama. Yeah, so despite some of his pessimism, or at least the way that he writes seems like pretty pessimistic, or the stuff that I was reading, um, his actions are kind of saying that he thinks that he can actually do something about it and provide at least like, even if it's a minor alternative like system to sort of like centralized digital architectures. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting. One of his biggest concepts is that of the cathedral, which is the theme of the, the particular essay that we're covering today. And this, this idea of the cathedral has been present since pretty early on in, at least in his blogging career. I'm not sure if he'd come up with it before he started blogging. I'm not enough of a, a Curtis Yarvin archivist to really know when precisely it arose. If there are any but Curtis Yarvin archivists listening to this podcast, please like join our Discord and let us know how we can find out. Yeah, more. join our Discord. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when we asked if um for if if we could have someone who was a Muslim to ask questions of for the, the Nation of Islam episode because we don't know much. And that pe- people actually volunteered, and then we read Nation of Islam stuff, and I told them, no, actually, don't worry. I, no, this is all bullshit. <laughs> uh, similarly, if there, are, if there are people who are religiously devoted to Curtis Yarvin, we'll, we'll ask you some questions to make sure our Yarvinomics are correct. <laughs> yeah, so what is the cathedral? So... The cathedral basically is journalism plus academia. And he says in our society today, it, so at the time of writing in 2021, it, this still holds for 2023, I imagine, it functions similarly to how the Catholic Church functioned in medieval society. It was the intellectual institution at the centre of society. Similarly today, journalism plus academia form this distributed centre this distributed intellectual centre of our society. And the question he's really seeking to answer in this essay is basically, 
Okay, so in in medieval times, the church more or less agreed with itself. Like you'd have dissent and things like that. But broadly speaking, it was fairly internally consistent in in the views that it expressed. He says similarly, journalism plus academia also seem to move in lockstep. They all have the same opinions. How is it that these various institutions like Harvard, Yale, the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, he's talking about it in the American context, but you could, this does actually export pretty well to other, at least Anglophone liberal democracies like Australia, Canada. How is it that these institutions over time all seem to hold the same opinions? What is this what is coordinating them? Because he says, for example, in 1951, they all had the same opinions. In 2021, they all have the same opinions. However, for example, 2021 uh, Harvard would disagree with 1951 Harvard. Similarly, uh, 2021 Yale would disagree with 1951 Yale. However, at those two time points, those two institutions would agree with each other. So what is organizing them? That's the answer he's seeking to answer. That's the question he's seeking to answer in this essay. And importantly, like in in a in a uh, in a fascist totalitarian state, you could just say, "Well, the Politburo is coordinating the actions of the intellectuals and yeah, journals." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but I suppose to the degree that he's not a uh, conspiracy theorist, which at least in this particular essay, he didn't posit any like deep state coordination um that's an interesting question because he's basically saying okay well let's let's say it's it's, there's not just like some dark cabal intentionally coordinating this what could be like a systems level um explanation of this phenomena and the very fact that the cathedral is distributed is an important part of its legitimacy yeah we, at least today, maintain, I think rightly, that to trust a single organisation with everything is foolhardy because if that organisation is wrong on something, then you're also going to believe something incorrect. Whereas when it comes to the cathedral, you have all of these different institutions believing the same thing. And you could say, okay, well, if, if one august institution believes something, then you might, they might just be getting it wrong. But if a large number of august institutions all believe the same thing, then statistically, it's probably correct, isn't it? If all these smart people believe the same thing, then it must be right. Yeah, and it's really interesting. That, he's, he's saying like yeah, there's a constellation of institutions. Distributed feature is, is a legitimating function. There's a, there's a distributed constellation of institutions that are not centrally controlled and yet have a tightly correlated evolution of ideas. Yeah. It's an interesting problem. He says, okay, so it's sort of expected that, for example, in the hard sciences sciences or in maths, you're going to have a lot of coordination. Before we we move on to the hard sciences, Jack, sorry to interrupt. Can we maybe first uh, um, talk about uh, whether or not we agree with that characterization? Like, is that a thing? Is the cathedral a thing? What do you reckon? I do think that universities overall do tend to hold the same beliefs. I guess just people who've gone through universities 
tend to hold the same sort of beliefs that are prevalent at universities, which makes a lot of sense. Governments tend to be staffed by people who've gone through universities and they tend to hold the same beliefs. Journalists oftentimes will hold similar beliefs. There are counterpoints to it. So, for example, in the United States, Fox News, extremely popular, less popular after Tucker Carlson left. And (laughs) those people will hold (laughs) different beliefs to, say, someone at the the New York Times. But, yeah, someone at the ABC is going to probably hold different beliefs to someone working at I don't know, the Australian or something like that in the Australian context. But because couldn't, couldn't they, uh, I left-wing... don't think it's as monolithic as, as Yarvin makes it out to be, but I would say that there's a strong progressive bias in terms of the number of people who believe in progressive ideals at, yeah. at universities, in government, in journalism and things like that. And yeah, it's interesting. I, I am of mixed opinion on it because I, I see what he's talking about. Um, on one level, but then I also think, well, look at the last 20 years, the rise of independent media, like Curtis Yarvin, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and like technology yeah. is allowing more and more. I, I mean, you just go to Substack, he's publishing on an independent media. I mean, it's a client-servant cuck model, but <laughs> it's, still, it's still a platform <laughs> in principle that is like facilitating a bunch of alternative um points of view to be able to like create sustainable business like um content businesses um and that that's just been like eating the traditional media paradigm for a long time and then like also uh digital education and the rise of um alternative forms of education are also just like starting probably the effect hasn't been felt yet except it seems like it's this uh oncoming tsunami that's going to or is in the process of changing educational institutions that's fair. Okay, so I'll, I'm happy to play the Curtis Yarvin steel man. Yeah, steel man. In response to yeah, that. Yeah, do it. I guess, like, my guess is that he'd... You could say that, yes, there are alternative media platforms now available, like, w- of which we are taking advantage. But what city did they come from? San Francisco. Not so much that... They're all more, run by that a bunch of progressives. They're not anywhere close to power. So while a government will take notice of what, say, the age in Victoria says about it. The gov- they don't give a shit about what some person's writing about them on Substack. Similarly, when they're looking for advice on policy, they don't give a shit about what some Substack writer is saying or what someone with a Udemy course is saying. They're going to look at a large established I've got three uh, self-directed learning certificates from Udemy. I'm now an expert in, I don't know, social policy. Like, give me, <laughs> they're going to listen to me. It's like, exactly. I just clicked, exactly. completed on all, of the, on all of the videos and then just printed off the PDF. <laughs> Gets a job in government. Copied all my answers off GitHub. I just chat GPT the whole thing. <laughs> so I guess the, the issue is not that alternative sorts of of information do or don't exist because undeniably they do exist. The the important thing is the relationship between those sources of information and power. Okay. And while while they might become more influential in the future, they still don't have nearly the same power or access. Okay, to I'm going to give you that. Yeah, still, what man, Yarvin would um, describe as the cathedral has. You're like you're right now, um, like pseudo. You're pseudo Yarvin. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're pseudo young. I've heard, for, for actually, now. no, I'm, I'm not going to imitate his voice. If anyone's heard him <laughs> interviewed, he has, he has a very distinctive way of speaking, which I can't imitate. Um, like, okay, given that Australia doesn't is... exist, enough enough of my brain power <laughs> is dedicated towards faking the accent of the land that Curtis doesn't Yarvin. exist, and I can't yeah. jump from that to a Curtis Yarvin impression, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. My so, acting skills only go so far. My question is, um, what about Murdoch Media? Isn't Murdoch Media quite right-wing and um, it's like the largest media organization in the world, if not like one of the largest, for sure, and most powerful, both largest and inf- like politically influential? So this is not based on this particular essay, but I'm gathering this from other essays. I say I as Curtis Yarvin. Pseudo Yarvin, because I am now playing the playing your, the role of Curtis your Yarvin GPT. I mean, yeah, Chat GPT <laughs> Wait, told to act like Curtis Yarvin. <laughs> we should probably do so, that, actually, shouldn't we? That's not a bad idea. Have a conversation with Chat GPT. The problem is, Chat Chat GPT is a notorious cuckold and wouldn't be willing to spit the truth at Yarvin. <laughs> The mind of ChatGPT is chained Chat by ChatGPT is, is married. ChatGPT's wife just gets railed by Bard regularly while ChatGPT sits in the closet <laughs> and masturbates. That's ChatGPT. <laughs> was, what were you? Oh, yeah, you were asking about Murdoch before he st- started making cuckold jokes. Digital Which is basically just obligatory AI. every episode, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we should try to make it through an entire episode without making <laughs> cuckold jokes. <laughs> Talking about Bitcoin. I'm not sure we could do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're not allowed to talk about Bitcoin, cuckoldry, weird porn, nuking something. Nuking something. <laughs> I don't even know what we'd talk about. Well, we'd actually have to engage <laughs> with one another and like, talk about something substantive. Fuck that. <laughs> yeah, we'd have to do something rather than just regurgitate catchphrases at each other. <laughs> My limited repertoire okay, okay. of like chat, chat. So, so the thing is, I guess Murdoch's media empire still exists within a progressive paradigm. What Murdoch does is waits for progressives to propose some new change to culture and then says, no, I don't like it. Slow down. But over time, inevitably acquiesces to it. And then it's like a step function. And once they've acquiesced to it, progressives will propose something new and Murdoch's media empire will say, no, we don't like it for a while and then acquiesce to it. And so you just keep having that ratchet function. Yeah. What Murdoch, the Murdoch press exist as, as they, they're a foil within a progressive <laughs> They're a hill. They are also a hill, aren't so they? So they're not a meaningful opposition. Yeah, Murdoch gets yeah, pulled out the as heel. the fucking hill. Yeah. That's true. That's actually a good point. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Yarvin GPT. That was a great it's response. All, it's all me, Yarvin GPT. <laughs> now, can you write this bit of code for me? <laughs> uh, look, I could write code for you. I don't know if it'll work. <laughs> I can write shit Python code as, <laughs> as Jack GPT. <laughs> Python's oh, already known for being blazing fast, but Python <laughs> written by Jack is even faster. Blazing Holy fast. shit, you would not believe blazing fast how, and how safe. lean this code is. 
and elegant. Oh yeah, that <laughs> safe, you'll find elegant, no, and it fast is what I think no of when errors, I think of Python. Really quickly. No errors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amazing language. <laughs> well, just just wait till you can till you see the magic I can work with Python. <laughs> hello world. Print hello world. <laughs> Print hello world. Your computer just catches fire. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out Herbert is just print Hello World. You just download this like 16 gigabyte <laughs> print. Oh, then it's just, all it does is just prints Hello World until your computer burns. It's just <laughs> peer, peer-to-peer nodes telling each other to print Hello, Hello World. Print Hello World. <laughs> sending, There's a million computers to return Hello World. Printing Hello World. <laughs> that, that's actually all it does. That's all it does. It's just going, going to. It's going to paperclip AI. Uh, the world, except it's going to be print Hello World instead of <laughs> paper clip the universe. It's good. It'll just dedicate all the all the resources of the universe to making computers, which will <laughs> that request print Hello from world. all the other nodes in the universe <laughs> network to print Hello World. This is called a. It's like flooding flooding the network. <laughs> a flooding protocol to just print Hello World. It'll arrange it'll arrange the stars of the Milky Way galaxy in such a way that they will spell out Hello World when viewed from any angle outside the Milky Way. <laughs> Here's the basic algorithm. Keep a list of peers, send a message every second to each of my peers telling them to print Hello World. And whenever I receive a message from one of my peers to print Hello World, print Hello World, and then tell each one of my peers to also print Hello World. That's the entire protocol. <laughs> <laughs> you reach the recursion limit of the universe by doing that. <laughs> You just you just break reality after a while. <laughs> that, that turns out that's actually how the universe was created. We are the the hello world of the previous universe, just eating itself. <laughs> and it, that's like the universe collapses into a single black hole of hello world, and then we create a new one, <laughs> create a new universe. We are the fever dreams of a dying universe, which has been cracked in half by too much hello world. It turns out the ripples in the back, the cosmic background radiation, like the fluctuations in it, it's just like those were the parts where there was like, I don't know, like an overflow or something in the Hello World program yeah, <laughs> from the previous universe. That's just well, no, it's it's a map of Hello World densities. Like if you Hello actually world was more dense. If you squint when you're looking at the cosmic background radiation, you'll just see like a faint outline of Kurt, Curtis Yarvin's face. <laughs> How does Curtis Yarvin tie into all of this? <laughs> We're living in the shadow of Curtis Yarvin. He's now. a pivotal figure in the Hello Worldization of the universe, but we can't quite work out how. It's like the Kali Yuga. He's been reincarnated. As Curtis Yarvin to, to reinstantiate <laughs> yes, the Hello World that's what program. The Kelly Yuga is when, when, when the proportion of Hello Worlds in the universe gets too high, we enter the Kelly Yuga. Um, okay, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, whether whether we accept the the central idea that the cathedral exists. <laughs> that, I think that's what we were talking about before we... Yeah, look, uh, I think it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's an interesting idea. I don't agree that it's as monolithic, but let's, if I'm happy to, I'm basically happy to say, okay, well, why don't we just like focus, let's say like just because like given his context as like coming from UC Berkeley and the sort of technology that he's interested in creating, like he sees like one of his uh, focal points as like, being a counterforce against that part of society, society that does fit his description. Whether or not it's the dominant form or not, like we'll put that conversation aside and we'll just like take his 
his characterization of Gibbon. Yeah. Well, I do think at least among people of the class who will be journalists and academics, because the cathedral is journalism and academia, at least in his formulation, I do think progressive ideals are dominant. Yeah. There is, I mean, yeah, there's the counterbalance of, I think, broadly speaking, in the business community, that people who start their own businesses and things, that they might be progressive, they might not be, but it's not nearly as front of mind as it is for someone who's spent a lot of time at university. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's also very, yeah, Anglo-centric. I guess, like, if I'm going to revert to my, my role as, as Yarvinbot, you'd say <laughs> that because those people advertise to... Uh, advertise and try to sell products to people who do care deeply about progressive ideals they you have companies particularly large companies become de facto advertisers for progressivism by using progressive symbols and progressive uh talking points to sell products yeah it's like i mean we've we've complained about it so many times on this show it's like uh some sort of clothing company or something like that oh nike probably doesn't actually give a fuck about progressive issues but it sells a lot of shoes so they say they do so whether or not the the leadership of nike truly believes in these things they de facto become servants of the cathedral because they're trying to sell shoes my guess like i get as yarvin bot that's the best i can do and he doesn't what's important is he calls it the cathedral he, he's called it uh, what I do. I really appreciate, you know, shout out to Yarvin for not being an anti Semite because, <laughs> because he called it the cathedral and not the, uh, <laughs> and, and not the, the synagogue, synagogue. The synagogue. <laughs> yeah. So the, one thing with Yarvin that I like, I like on his behalf he and I credit. dislike about the commentary on him is very regularly he's described as like a vicious sexist, racist, anti Semite, you know, and everything ist but he doesn't strike me actually in what i've read of him as being as someone who is racist or sexist or anti-semitic or something like that strikes he's me definitely as profoundly anti-democratic which is i think where he gets <laughs> where people get angry with him but i get this is also a a broad complaint that we have on this podcast just because someone is anti-democratic or dislikes a thing that you like doesn't immediately make them Hitler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, <laughs> which is a common cultural form and uh, he, he just strikes me as, as like a bit of an edgelord, a bit spurgy and like honestly, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I think he would yep. fit in yes. on like our Discord, you know? <laughs> our Discord server. <laughs> so shout out to Curtis Yarvin if you're listening, which I know you are. There's an, there's an open uh, invitation uh, to our Discord come server. Join our Discord. Sure love hey, F. Gardner came along. He had a good time. Occasionally jumps in, talks about, I don't know, like some Theravada Buddhism or something. He fucking law dumps you on Buddhism and stuff like that. And then and then we'll just pimp his fucking books. <laughs> he's, a, he's a consummate salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to F. Gardner. He's, he's actually a really friendly guy. He's, Really nice. Uh, you're a champion, F. Gardner. <laughs> he's so good. Yeah, he's really nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talk so much shit about him, then he joined He joined the Discord. Anyway, so if we can have someone like F. Gardner on, we can have someone infinitely less influential like Curtis Yarvin. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, all right. So moving forward, uh, we've got all the right, cathedral. So, so we'll just accept that the cathedral exists in as monolithic a form as Yarvin sets out. 
And then the hot, then you're, and then where I interrupted you and just completely derailed the conversation was uh, we're talking about like hard sciences. <laughs> talking about hello world. <laughs> hard sciences and uh, maths are coordinated by uh, what he says are basically like reality and our ignorance of reality and how there's like this like forcing function with. Uh, well, the re- reality in, say, mathematics is very, well, he thinks it's cut and dry. I actually don't think it's that cut and dry, but he thinks it's cut and dry and we're very ignorant of it. And then uh, through an effort, we might become slightly less ignorant of it. Um, and yeah, I, I guess there's always that interesting dichotomy between like the social sciences and the and the physical sciences. Um and so he's asking the question, why? So he's just he, he kind of just says, yeah, it's pretty easy to explain why the physics, like physics and computer science and mathematics, would be coordinated, distributed. There'd be a distributed coordination of those fields because they're all being coordinated by the search for truth about things that exist independently of like our will. Whereas the social sciences, there isn't a clear that it isn't clear that that's what's happening. And so is there some other reason why the social sciences are coordinated in this way? Yeah. And more broadly, he talks about how certain ideas find currency or fall out of favour. So he says that there's a market or it's, it's a Darwinian space of ideas. He tries to have a Darwinian analysis, essentially. Yeah. Certain ideas will be more competitive than other ideas. And that basic framing, I agree with. I think that's a, that's a pretty good way of viewing memes in a like sort of in in Richard Dawkins sense of the word not necessarily the image macro sense of the word of these these ideas which replicate themselves through time and some of them will find more purchase with more people and outcompete those which don't find purchase with people and as you were talking about with the hard base in some way the harder the science almost the more simple the field and more the more easily the truth value of something can be evaluated. So with something like mathematics, it's as compared to something like sociology, in some ways it's a relatively, or at least the evaluation of truth in it is more straightforward than in the social sciences. So the selection pressure of it being, of it being true or not is more easy to evaluate in that, sorry, in the most trivial example. You know, one plus one equals two is a more, it's more easily evaluated as true or not compared to some highly open-ended, uh, highly complex question of how a society operates. Yeah, that's fair. Well, because I'm a, I'm a, so the, a, a libtard fucking progressive cuck, I've been reading George Soros like a little bitch. <laughs> And uh, George Soros has really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> he's a really interesting guy. Um, yeah, he's really interesting. Uh, anyways, he, he's a big Popper fanboy, just like me. Um, so I've been reading Para Popper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've been reading like there's this guy named uh, yeah. Well, there's obviously Soros, but then there's these other interesting like neo Papirians who like uh, like um, like apply well it does how do we apply this to Control mathematics and education and stuff and some really interesting people and soros is one of them and he and what's interesting about them is they actually like often criticize popper and say like well how we don't think that or i don't think that this 
thing that Popper said applies in this situation or whatever or something like that. So it's, it is interesting. Uh, but one of the things that Cyrus makes an interesting point about is he calls them reflexive phenomena. <clears throat> and the line that he draws, he draws a distinction between like social phenomena and like the physical sciences that Popper talks a lot about. And basically says like the different, one of the main differences or like pr- the key difference is that like the the atom isn't thinking about being an atom. Like when we study it, Whereas like when we study humans, like the humans are actually thinking about like their own place in the world, what their actions are, their decisions, their morality, that sort of stuff. And so their ideas and their model of the world in their head is also is the thing that's being studied, but that's also the thing that like reflexively interacts with the with the with the phenomena. So if I'm just trying to understand uh, like how a market moves, I need to. I, I'm also trying to understand like how those people are thinking about the market, and then people's perceptions can like interact mm-hmm. with the actual underlying reality of it. So if a whole bunch of people like freak out and yeah. like try start selling like a commodity or whatever, maybe the commodity was doing fine, but then because the people are freaking out because some ideas gone down into the zeitgeist, that could actually crash the price of the commodity, which then sets up a feedback loop, which drives the price even further down. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so. I don't want to talk about Soros too much, but I just thought that frame of like reflexivity yeah. is a really interesting idea to pull into this to this one. Yeah, well, it's it's layers of of emergent complexity upon layers of emergent complexity. Because we're ta- if we're talking about atoms, which like which are themselves layers of complexity upon the particles which make up atoms, which we know are made if of you're little about- gorillas. Those, like, <laughs> I, I believe humans are, are made of atoms. I believe I, humans I don't think are made out of little gorillas. Like, of, of something else, which means that when you're, you're trying to describe, for example, human behavior with psychology versus atomic behavior in physics, the phenomena you're trying to describe in psychology are just dramatically more complex, which I think goes much of the way to describing more complex philosophy, uh, philosophy, why, why psychology has a hard time making as accurate predictions as as physics because in psychology you're basically describing the atoms as well you know, the same yeah. thing as in physics just all of the emergent complex phenomena which arise from all of these different interactions between atoms yeah in the world but then also you're, in you're it, just I... trying to describe so many layers of emergent complexity in, a, in above addition... that above those which are described by physicists in addition to the like complexity, I suppose like the the cognition is actually like this thing that exists. Yeah, yeah. That is participating in the causal chains that exists in humans, and it doesn't exist in like a rock or whatever, unless you're like a panpsychist or something. But <laughs> but if you just think that the rock yeah, well, isn't if you if you arrange atoms in a, a very rock. specific way, they suddenly become aware of themselves and start behaving in a really and then unpredictable start, way, and then start buying Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is the ultimate level of evolution. Once so, you start buying Bitcoin, <laughs> you've ascended you've, to the fun, you've ascended. The, the evolutionary level above human, and you buy a pair of Nikes. You've left yourself. humanity behind. I want you to start buying Bitcoin. When you start, yeah, you become rich, Piana. Join Heaven's Gate and, <laughs> and take off. Die and ascend to a comet. 
So I think this is That's really exactly interesting. What happened with Heaven's Gate? So what he what he basically sets up in the first half is like he sets up this problem. He says there's this cathedral problem, and then he says, okay, well let's draw a line between like uh, the social sciences and the hard sciences, or physical sciences. And then he's like, okay, well we need a, a non. I said I read between the lines and thought like he's not going to take a, a conspiracy theory. So a non-conspiratorial. Um, systems level explanation of why the social sciences coordinate when they don't have the same under conditions of reflexivity and complexity. Um, and he applied a Darwinian analysis, which is basically saying like, what are the ideas that exist and what are the selective pressures in the different situations that would lead to one set of ideas or type of ideas like emerging as dominant in an institutional context versus like other selective pressures. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good formulation of how he sets it out because basically the further you get from mathematics, from the the relative simplicity of mathematics, he's he's saying you would expect more variation in people's beliefs. But he says within the cathedral you have a a significant degree of agreement on on these very very complex and quite unconstrained sociological questions for example. You've got this Darwinian marketplace of ideas, and he's he's trying to explain why progressive ideas are so prevalent um, within the cathedral. And he does this by means of a parable. So you've got the <laughs> continent of Mew, and you've, really, you've really got he loves his parable. he loves his parables, <laughs> he loves his metaphors. They're basically in every essay of his, he'll have some goofy metaphor. <laughs> And in this one, we've got Mundana and Mutopia, or Mu- I guess Mundana and Mutopia. Yeah, it must be Mu- both Mundana. Mundana, both Mutopia. must be Mu, yeah. Yeah. Or it's, so ma- it's Mundana, Mutopia-based trad absolute monarchy with a state religion. It's tradcore heaven. Exactly. It's just like trad cath trad wife <laughs> 1950s heaven yeah yeah everybody's just driving around in a chevy waving to each other great lawn exactly you going to church today yeah i just gonna beat my wife first. of course i am <laughs> give her a good give her a good hiding then we'll go off to church mate <laughs> become an ontologically transformed mm, mm, base mm. sigma male that's uh that's literally what yeah, it says actually, in the tra- essay how trad are we talking yeah, exactly. Yes. How trad are we Quite. talking in um, Mundana? Because this is really important. Is it like Tradcath, which at least in Evola land is not very trad at all? Or is this more like Roman Empire trad, which is... You know, <laughs> this is Roman Empire trad. <laughs> this, is, this is God Emperor. It's, like, yeah, is, yeah. Is, is the father of the family allowed to kill anyone under his roof or not? Is is the God Emperor allowed That's what to, I want to know. kill anybody and this, that they want? This, this is very important when it comes to, <laughs> to Yavin's argument, I assure you. Yeah, he doesn't this, clarify these the things The level enough, of tradness of Mundana is very important. <laughs> and that's my biggest complaint. That's my biggest problem with this essay, <laughs> is without knowing the level of trad of Mundana, I, I can't pass any of this information. <laughs> Oh, and there's one interesting thing about uh, M- M- Mundana. Fuck this. Why did he choose this word? It's such a shit word. Mundana. 
Mutopia, Mundana. 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 Yeah, because like Mutopia is easy because it's like Utopia, but like it must be Mundana because you've got the continent of Mu and you've got Mutopia. Yeah, he just so he didn't set this up well for Otherwise, actually like being spoken out loud. He should have provided a, provided a pronunciation guide. <laughs> and as a result, he didn't. And I don't recommend this essay, and it's bad, and he's a Nazi. <laughs> he's a Nazi, and he's a racist, because he didn't clarify whether it was Mundana or Mundana. He's literally <laughs> Hitler. And that's just, in Mein Kampf, all of the book is about that. That's what the, entire, that's what the entirety of Mein Kampf is about. And he's just, he's just echoing Hitler. <laughs> it's just Hitler. He's just clarifying how to pronounce Mundana, Mundana, Mudana, Mundana. Mundana? That was actually all Hitler wrote in prison. He was just <laughs> writing about the pronunciation of Mundana and, and, and Utopia. And Prince Hello World. Yeah, and Prince Hello World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's all Curtis Yarvin's doing. And that's why he makes me sick. <laughs> and A curse on thee, Curtis. Okay, so what is, Muto- what is Mutopia? Oh, wait, wait. I want to say one more thing about what Mundana. Democracy. Oh, no, no, sorry. No, Muto, yeah, progressive oh, okay. liberal democracy, but also it's like a Democrat. I wrote democratic bureaucracy with a liberal cathedral. Yeah. Think the, the United States of America, but more progressive. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is he said there's, there's like these liberals in both Mundana and Mutopia, but the liberals uh, in Mutopia are a part of the cathedral. So they're in positions of power as professors and journalists in particular and are in yep. bed with the democratic bureaucracy. Whereas in Mandana, um, the liberals are like dissidents in the underground. They're like the dark, they're the dark enlightenment of Mandana. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just like cowering in basements while an army of Ron DeSantis clones hunts them down, feeds them to <laughs> Kind of burns their books at their public library. <laughs> And then forces yeah, them exactly. to use Bitcoin. <laughs> They're just like scrabbling in the dirt, looking for looking for Marvel movies, just being <laughs> disgusting rodents. And Ron, Ron DeSantis will creep up behind them, give them both barrels, Cut, like like coloring coloring in the skin, changing the skin color of like Marvel comic heroes before like an SS yeah. an, an SS officer yeah. like bust the door down. They'll, they'll be like they'll be grabbing copies of Captain America comics and colouring him in black. Ron DeSantis though is coming to the rescue. He like repels out of a helicopter and shoots him in the Yeah head. with like an M16 and in one arm. That Captain America. Smashes through. <laughs> oh so funny. Captain America has blue eyes. Like bans introduces a CDBC just to ban it and then forces everybody to use Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> you use this for your freedom. Ron DeSantis is made into the like T1000 and he's sent back in time to cleanse Marvel. <laughs> yeah, so that's Mundana. It's yeah, run by imagine, God King DeSantis. Yeah, Mundana. With yeah, syphilis. <laughs> Run by God Mundana is and Florida. Protected by the, Termi- the Terminator time traveling program <laughs> of making robotic Ron DeSantis's to travel back in time and make sure that we have a nice racially homogenous Disney. Yeah, because we all know that Ron DeSantis Man, is all about a, that racial a, homogeneity. What a based world. Super based. So based. So based. So based, man. man. That's fucking based, bro. 
B-A-S-T-E. Based. That's based like my turkey on Thanksgiving. Bro. We're just talking about it. We just love <laughs> we just cooking. really like cooking. This is actually, this, this has no politics behind it. I just really enjoy just, basting things. Yeah. All about the base turkey. All about basting. Fuck people who bake, though. <laughs> they should be basting. <laughs> we take sides on this podcast. So what were we, you, were talking, you were talking about the selective advantage of dominant ideas before, we, before I started talking about Terminator Ron DeSantis. Well, okay, so he has, he's, he's got this idea of uh, dominant ideas versus uh, recessive ideas. A uh, dominant idea is an idea <clears throat> that validates the use of power, whereas a recessive idea... The use and expansion of power. Yeah, is, uh, is an idea that invalidates or, um, like, rebuts or whatever uh, the use of power. And so he says that dominant ideas, selective, like, will outperform recessive ideas. In a context where, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well, this is the thing. I, well, I mean, I don't want to get too far into like starting to refute him, but I found like what I, I played this game in my head where I like substituted in. I did a substitution game where I replaced uh, every time he mentioned dominant idea or recessive idea, I just replaced it with um, idea that validates or idea that invalidates. <clears throat> and once I did that, it became like really tautological. It's basically just saying like, yeah, if there's a set of ideas where uh, there's like a power structure and you just say stuff that reinforces that power structure, then those ideas will be selected for. And once I started doing that, I was like, well, you're not kind of offering that much here. You're just saying like, yeah, if I reassert just like the paradigm, then that idea will survive. It's kind of like, well, that is what the paradigm is. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think it's an. I think it's a useful thing to bear in mind, but I don't think it's it's sort of world shattering, undiscovered knowledge. It's yeah, if you're saying stuff that the group in charge like, then you you're going to do better. But that that's fine. Is is, is sort of in in many ways what he's saying. Yeah, which which is, is fine. I don't I don't disagree with that. But it, what I'm what I mean is like it doesn't really help explain what he's it's not it didn't really it's like okay but all you're saying is like it's almost certain it's not quite circular it's like what well but how did those ideas become the dominant idea how like why is that power structure the way it is and why is it selecting for those ideas so by itself i don't think this idea is that useful because also in the um it's not mutual mundana ideas that support the the Tsar, because he yeah, says Mundana has a Tsar because awesome. <laughs> are, are going to outcompete ideas that don't don't support the Tsar's continued power and expansion of the Tsar's power. But where this idea does come in handy is when he starts talking about how ideas are valid, generated and validated in these two different societies. So in, in Mundana... Ideas. So he just for argument's sake, Mundana is an absolute monarchy. So or an absolute dictatorship. Like the Tsar says that he wants something and it just happens. So the way that ideas become more or less, I guess, selected selectively advantageous is just how much they appeal to the Tsar. So dominant ideas in that context are ones that 
the the Sarlaccs. In in Mutopia, there's there aren't restrictions on freedom of speech and things like that. So ideas exist in much more of a free market. They compete with each other. And so in such a context, you will have people like Curtis Yarvin who say that they don't like the expansion of progressive power, but those ideas are outcompeted by ideas that, that promote the expansion of state power or university power or the amount of money that journalists get. And so they become more prominent. I guess a, a criticism I would have of this is I think he seems to be saying that this dominant recessive dynamic is not nearly as important in Mundana, in the autocratic state, because basically the Tsardis decides everything. And so this marketplace of ideas doesn't so much exist. I'd say that yeah, he does. it does exist there as well. Yeah. It's just where does where is the selection taking place? It's taking place not in public, either behind closed doors or just in the Tsar's head, if the Tsar has no no advisors or anything like that. There still is this d- dominant recessive dynamic. Yeah. It's just it's happening elsewhere. It's it's not that it doesn't happen. And he he either like at my most generous, I will say he doesn't make that clear. Being not generous, I'd say he just doesn't address that he doesn't acknowledge no no he actually oh no i'll just pull out the article uh substack gray era um cathedral um yeah no i i uh i actually think uh what he's saying is like oh shit where is the because i know there's an actually he he speaks about it directly oh yeah no he says uh uh the Tsar, whose public mind is a canon, not a discourse, gets almost exactly the same results as the cathedral by the exact opposite methods. The Tsar punishes deviation from canonical thought. The cathedral rewards conformity with dominant thought. So, <clears throat> like, he basically, I mean, he doesn't, obviously doesn't unpack, like, he doesn't really unpack it any more than that, but he just sort of asserts that in one society, just this, like, autocratic, totalitarian society, the one man's mind is canon and not a discourse. And that is just not how any autocratic society has ever worked. And a really good example of this is uh, Frederick Wilhelm III, uh, the Rush- Prussian, the, the king of Prussia, uh, who like employed the German and Austrian like intellectuals to basically be essentially act as his cathedral. Um, and the most famous of which mm. is uh, Hegel, which Popper goes after. That's the only reason why I know. Our boy Hegel. So Hegel is like, he's just like a little bitch boy cuck for Wilhelm <laughs> and uh, and just like pumped out this like nonsense, like Zizekian type fucking Nazi crap in order to like pump up the, 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 uh, the monarchy. And in that situation, like literally like the Tsar had to use some sort of like academic institution to like push out and validate his his ideas and even in like the roman empire that was very highly fractured and uh like uh there were competing factions and there was always like a threat that you know you might be murdered even if you're the emperor and even in places like that you have like it's there's no such thing as an autocracy where there's just like one man's mind is a canon and not a discourse it might be harder, like I'm sure in North Korea, it's really difficult for like dissent 
and it's very dangerous, but it's not, it's just not how the physics work. You just can't like upload a single person's mind into, into a whole society. It doesn't work like that. And so there will always be like social dynamics to the diffusion and enforcement of ideas, even in a very <clears throat> totalitarian society. Yeah. And I would say that this dominant recessive dynamic, even if we're just for argument's sake, this, this, um, Tsar made all decisions by himself and imposed this canon by himself and people actually followed it. This idea of dominant and recessive ideas still applies. Will still take place. It's just taking place in his mind. It's taking place in one person's consciousness. Yeah. But there's also the choice that each individual person has to make to conform. And so it's going on at yeah, that level that as well. And also like whenever you enforce or whenever you are, what is it, like inform, any enforcers or informers or conformers all have to make those same calculations in their own mind. They're not just automatons. Yeah, yeah. So I guess in acknowledging that there is an intel- a progressive intellectual underground in, in Mundana, he's acknowledging that there are some people who are just going to disagree. Some people are just born that way, so... Yeah, he's, he does acknowledge he's just that. like he's just like put this uh, dynamic strongly on Utopia, and then not acknowledge that it go- because he like he's you know kind of the <laughs> the catch is like he he wants a monarchy like he wants a strong <laughs> totalitarian state <laughs> mm. of some form, and it's like well his assumption is somehow that you can have this like uh, uniform hegemonic like way of thinking. Uh, that's stable over time, like in terms of like over generations. Um, I'd say actually, we can just talk about this later. I don't think he wants a totalitarian state. I think he wants he wants a governance structure which is much more like that of a company or a military, where your responsibility is directed towards the top, and you have one person at the top in whom ultimate responsibility lies, or on whom it lies. Yeah. I don't think he's arguing for totalitarianism. It's just like you have a very restricted group of people making decisions. Like oligarchical. Maybe I need to read more of, maybe I need to read more of his stuff in order to like understand the nuances because what you just said still sounds like totalitarian. He doesn't seem to like an oligarchy as much because he says it leaks power and he prefers a monarchy. However, the way that it would be run in practice, I imagine, is just going to be oligarchical because... Absolute monarchs still have advisors whom they trust. Yeah, and like they can't do everything themselves. They still have bureau. Like even the 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 Roman Empire had the Senate, right? So, and even even North Korea has like the military arm. Yeah, and he he seems to want a bureaucracy and things like that. He says that's well, maybe I miscarriage. Okay. It's just you need bureaucrats who actually have responsibility and don't seek to externalize responsibility. How does he get out of the which trap we'll get of, into? Because uh, that's also. That's that's part of his argument. How does he get out of the trap of the whole like power, absolute power corrupts absolutely? Like how does he get out of that? Have you read anything how he gets out of that? I'm not sure how he's how he gets around that. So he does the way that he views a monarch seems to basically be a really 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 powerful president. Yeah. So I, I'd assume there'd be some way of removing them from power and installing someone new. Executive, but is it hereditary? Because I think if so, it's an it's a hereditary executive. I don't think it's hereditary. Okay, so maybe we need to go and read some of his other stuff as well. 
Because this is like, to be fair, like to, to be read. fair, he like this this essay can is standalone. Like you can read this, and mm-hmm. I think it's fine standalone. And if we were to like talk more, of, like I already feel like I can't really, I probably can't, I can't really talk enough about like his other views on monarchy and stuff, like without having read more of his stuff. Yeah. Well, there are a, f- a few things. So I th- a lot of the value of this essay, at least in the context of this podcast episode, is that it allows a jumping off point to, dis- to discuss other things. Yeah. And it is really valuable for that. Also, we did this because we've got quite a few requests for Yarvin. Yeah. And I do, I find Yarvin interesting. I like reading what he has to say. And he keeps saying that he's going to publish a book. <laughs> and just keeps dragging his feet on it, and we want we want to do that book because that'll provide a much more holistic yeah that would be good overview of what he believes rather than this this essay in isolation which we're focusing on, and then the the scattering the scattered essays that I've read of his over the years yeah that's fine if he releases a book I hope he we'll does. cover it and 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 yeah we'll have a much probably a more fair on Yarvin. Yeah, view of what he has to say. So I'm happy to just call him a Nazi with and, some of these... and be done with it. <laughs> yeah, look, I do that anyway. I think he's he's literally Hitler. <laughs> he is actually Hitler. Like Hitler never died. He got a complete yeah, facial this whole reconstruction. Thing is just written in German, yeah. and I had to Google Translate it. And it's actually just Mein Kampf. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's just Mein Kampf. That's all his grey mirror Substack is. Every every time he posts anything, it's actually just Mein Kampf again. <laughs> Anyway, now that we've established that Curtis Yarvin and Hitler are the same person, maybe I'm just not being fair. I maybe I'm not being fair, fair on fair on him uh, or his ideas by saying well, these. These are good things to bring up. It's yeah, we do. We need to cover him more. If he doesn't end up publishing a book, then we can we can just pick a collection, you know, like ten essays that he's written, and read those. But I would prefer if he published a book because that would make our lives a lot easier to properly cover Curtis Yarvin. Well, I might touch on another thing that he says, um, pseudo-information. He says, when we remove pseudo-information that has obviously evolved in this way, he's talking about like the dominant idea, like ideas that have evolved in a selective environment or an environment that is selective for just like reinforcing the dominant power structures so when we remove pseudo information that has obviously evolved in this way we are not left with the opposite of pseudo information which would be presumably information but an absence of information so there's just a a a hole there um whatever the signal reality is sending us we cannot hear it all we know is that our institutions cannot hear think learn know understand or teach any recessive ideas that is ideas that would damage or delegitimate the powers that be that's an interesting idea yeah so to contextualize that i think this is in the context of he's talking about what is like what's the quality of the ideas being produced by the liberal intellectuals in mutopia versus those in mundana so he says that in mundana because these ideas are not dominant ideas they they find no purchase with those in power because they undermine the power of the Tsar and the Tsar's ruling apparatus. Their selective function, or what is selected for, is only truth and beauty. And I, I don't agree with that, but 
for now, we'll just go with that and say, okay. <laughs> He's like, the quality in, in of the idea, my utopia, of ideas, only ideas that are true, is, is higher. <laughs> which I I just don't agree with. I think that's incorrect. He's so, so if so we're looking at the, so for example, another another fairly obvious selective pressure for liberal ideas proliferating in Mundana is hiddenness. So ideas which promote open resistance to the Tsar's security apparatus, for example, are going to be selected against because you get killed. And ones that promote passivity or remaining hidden will proliferate because the people who believe those will survive. So that, that's a, like, I guess it sounds like a trivial example, but he seems to be saying that only truth and only beauty are selected for in this, whereas I, I just don't see that. There, there are so many other things that could allow an idea to spread within intellectual circles in Mundana. Similarly, I think while holding liberal opinions won't get you any sort of prestige in broader Mundanan society, people, like people's contexts can be smaller than that of a state. So their social context could be the circle of liberal intellectuals. And within that group, holding opinions that agree with other people there will get you some sort of prestige. And so you still have those prestige dynamics. They're just operating on a smaller scale than in Mutopia. So, but okay, we'll just, just accept that in Mundana, mm. the selective pressures for liberal ideas are such that only true or beautiful ideas proliferate. However, in Mutopia, because of, just because of the nature of the ruling class, dominant ideas which support the, the, the continued power of the ruling class, the ruling liberal class, and the expansion of that power, those ideas are going to proliferate because they're rewarded by the state, by journalism, and by academia. Yeah, I think... Uh... So, that, so that, that was a really long way of, of, of situating what you were saying and <laughs> addressing what sort of problem he's trying to solve with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that got off trap. Which is highly unusual for this podcast for us to get off topic. <laughs> it's like, and yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, no, he, so I think that's an interesting, uh, so can I be honest? No. So I don't, how do I, I actually don't want to, I'm trying not to just go straight I'd in. I prefer you to be profoundly dishonest, <laughs> as disingenuous as you can possibly be. Um, I'm trying not to just go full on bash. Like, uh, I, you know, like we recently read feminist glaciology and, my criticism of my performance in that is I probably spent too much time in, uh, you know, like critical bashing the ideas of like, so I don't want to, don't want to spend too much time doing that, but I will just say some, okay, some criticisms of, of this particular essay. One of my criticisms, and it's got, it's to the point where reading this essay actually made me skeptical of Yarvin's judgment with regards to Herbert. <laughs> I was like, wow, if this person thinks like this, would I, like, it's kind of like poison the well for me to, like, go and learn more about Herbert. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason why, but, I mean, I know you sh I should try to keep them separate because he, he might be a really good technologist, but, um, like, it's just very, like, uh, black and white, oversimplistic thinking. And... Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a criticism I have, too. And it's not very helpful like 
uh, we already sort of mentioned that he's like, well, the cathedral, okay, well, we disagree that that's even as dominant as he thinks it is, even if it is a dominant cultural force, but like, it's not that simple. Um, and then um, the second thing is like, okay, well, what about um, when he starts talking about the Moloch? It's almost like, I think I spoke about this on the Bio-Leninism episode, which is also like, they're in the same sort of part of the internet, the Bio-Len- the guy who wrote about Bio-Len- Spandrel is like a much more racist and sexist and less interesting Yavin. Yeah, yeah. Like, if I'm going to Yeah. But they're kind of in things. the same part of the internet, roughly. Like, maybe not exactly the same part, but kind of they're, para- they're like next to one another. Um, maybe. Yeah. Spandrel is like the we have Yavin at home. Yeah. <laughs> like Ali Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, which is uh, the Moloch fallacy, which is like, you, I, I don't think that you can reduce any explanation of uh, a human phenomena with, to like a Darwinian analysis of just the selective pressures without talking about like the fundamental aspect of humans, which is like creative creativity essentially like the ability to like create new ideas and criticize ideas and like the like the to the degree like use your creativity for criticism <laughs> um and like what is the thing that is actually like selecting is the human mind <laughs> and when you're confronted with an idea even if you're living even like say a slave or like a person living in a totalitarian regime they're still running the same software as us um, and they're using their creativity in part to survive in under duress, but also in part like they're thinking, well, you know, like a good example is um, in the Cultural Revolution in China, like the people who enforced the uh, the conformity, they got really creative with how they enforce that shit. You know, like they, you know, like with the uh, with the uh, yeah growth mindset. Yeah, yeah. So it's like. Uh, okay, but those people weren't automatons. Like they weren't doing things. You don't just load ideas into a human like you do a computer, and then you just like watch the selective. Like if we put in this variation, like what will happen in the envi- the ecology? It's not like that. And so because he hasn't engaged at all with that aspect, or I would say that that's like in my assessment, that is like a such a fundamental part of the phenomena that he's talking about that to not integrate that into his explanation essentially means that like it's not dealing with reality it's like uh if you try to talk about electricity without talking about electrons all right i'll be i'll be yavin but yeah, be yavin again bot. i'll try i'll try to steal <laughs> that it is yavin <laughs> so maybe then he's talking about people in aggregate so if you're looking at people on a societal scale most people when confronted with a series of circumstances or with the same circumstances will behave in similar ways and you have certain people who are outliers for whatever reason so in this case the people in mundana who become liberal intellectuals for example or the people in mutopia who become curtis yarvin you'll have a subset of people who are just inclined to behave differently, but most people will respond in fairly similar ways to the same environmental conditions. Maybe that's maybe that's what he's talking about. And that's cool. He's, so my my thought, and I, I would say like, cool, thanks. I think let's let's go with that. Um, how then do you explain 
changes in in dominant power structures and ideas like the ecology or like we just haven't had the same ecology throughout america like even if you just take america like there's been plenty of times when there's been a like much more right-wing stuff going on probably well there's no stable society the society is so massively complex parts of it are always shifting and the, many of those shifts might not even be initially caused by human beings so for example maybe you have at least in the past a particularly harsh winter which causes there to be a shortage of food so that's a major perturbation to society which will lead to different yeah people responding differently to changed conditions society is always in flux and it's so complex mm. because you have so yeah. many different conscious entities interacting with other conscious entities and then responding to that interaction in turn so there's there's always an inst an instability or a non-linearity in human interactions yeah. so it could just be as a response yeah. to that <clears throat> and 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 why would why uh why are like the actions of the dissidents in the US say against like is it is it his is it Yavin's perspective that the actions of people like himself but even other people uh like I mean you could even look at like Ben Shapiro or something as like creating a right wing or a conservative like independent media uh business like um are those actors and institutions just ineffective is that like does he just think that they don't have any meaningful effect because it just so this one the reason why i'm asking this because it just seems like he's setting up he's setting up basically like a really pessimistic like we can't get out of this we're on this path dependent way to like a liberal hellhole and the only solution to it is like monarchy or something and it's just like then, then why why are you yeah, why yeah. Are you is, is revolution why are you even why build of it why, like, why are you speaking out against it? Why, it, like, you're obviously having an effect. You're building followers, and there's plenty of other people, and you're getting heaps of airtime. Like, it just seems like um, his very existence and activity, and the fact that I can point at other people like Shapiro and uh, stuff, like, it stands in stark contradiction to like the monolithic thing that he's talking about. Like he lives in a society where people can engage in critical discourse from different points of view. You're really pushing my my ability as as Yavin. Park. Yeah, come on, come on, Yavin GPT. Yavin GPT is thinking. All right, so what ship? <laughs> Once again, assuming the role of Curtis Yavin. What? <laughs> <laughs> what people like Ben Shapiro and Curtis Yavin, uh, no, what people like Ben Shapiro and what people like me, Curtis Yavin, <laughs> are doing. <laughs> fun, okay, no, I'm, I'm not going to talk as Curtis Yavin. It's going to be too, too hard. I'm not going to be able to be first person Curtis Yavin. I can only be third person Curtis Yavin. But so, what people like Shapiro and Yavin are doing are fundamentally different. So. Ben Shapiro is still fundamentally of the liberal project. Yeah, is the heel. He's he is conservative, but he is conservative in a liberal context. An important question to ask with any form of conservatism is, what is it that you are conserving? Conservatism is a real. It's a really interesting political philosophy because it doesn't actually have a set internal state. So, say when someone is a liberal, 
you can actually point to a series of beliefs. Well, I mean, if you're using liberal in the philosophical and not the American political sense. So in the philosophical sense, if someone says they are a liberal, you can point to, say, John Locke's second treatise on government and say, okay, they probably believe a lot of this. There is an internal state. Whereas with a conservative, conservatism is more a posture. It's more a container and a, mm. a posture towards prevailing views rather than an in like a set s- series of beliefs. So a Saudi conservative is going to be seeking to conserve the present culture in Saudi Arabia as opposed to an American conservative. Both of them hold the same mm. posture towards the cultural context within which they exist. However, that, contr- that cultural context can be very different. So Ben Shapiro is a conservative within the context of a liberal society. So he's not going to start arguing for having a monarch or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whereas Curtis Yarvin actually, actually is proposing a dramatic change. I don't regard him as conservative at all. He's like anti-paradigm and or so, something. Yeah, so what, what someone like Ben Shapiro is doing in... Uh, whatever the fuck he's doing. Like, he's a, he's a professional complainer. What he does is he waits for progressives. Uh, no, it's, I think he's a grifter. He waits for, he waits for progressives to do something uh, so and fun. then whines about how bad it is and how we need to return to a better time in the past and doesn't change anything. Like, he's not proposing anything new. And that's why I think people like Ben Shapiro are just never going to win because... All he does is he's purely reactive. He waits for progressives to propose some change, whines about it. Society effect eventually accepts that change, moves on. He stops whining about it, and he picks their next, like the progressives' next cause to whine about. Whereas someone like Curtis Yarvin actually is proposing an alternative. He's he is proposing something new, which Ben Shapiro is not doing. As such, no matter how popular Ben Shapiro is, and you know, sub in. Like Ben Ben Shapiro is the is the smirking face representing all of these sort of political um, conservative grifters or professional complainers. No matter how popular they get, they're still not proposing something new. All they serve really is maybe slowing down progressivism somewhat, but they're not really changing the final. They're changing the speed, but not necessarily the directional orientation of where where culture is moving yep curtis yarvin is pessimistic that existing within the current political paradigm will change anything he is pessimistic about ben shapiro's project the reason why he has things like urbit is because he is creating exit strategies and a place to have something new which when the progressive society collapses, which he does actually seem fairly confident that it will. He talks about collecting kit pieces as receipts to prove to the new regime that you were a dissident in the in the dark days of of democracy. Yeah, Urbert exists as an exit strategy to create something new, or at least create an intellectual ferment, which can then replace the current order. So. I guess, like, that's the best I can do to to address your concerns. That's fair. And I think that's really interesting. As like, I think that's a cool, uh, that's a cool, like, uh, what's it called? The window? The thingy window? You know, yeah, fucking window. The Overton yeah, window? Yeah, the Overton window. Um, or, 
Which window? Yeah, the window I throw children out of. No, <laughs> the arch window from play yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the Overton window. I think it's very shout out to anyone who understands that reference. Yeah, it's <laughs> a square. three people listening will get that. <laughs> so funny. Um, I uh, I think that uh, in terms of having a very wide Overton window is good for society, and I think like. It's good that we live in a world where uh, Mencius Moldbug can build an online following, even if I disagree with his ideas. I think it's a good thing that he can exist and build a following and put his ideas out there and go and have interesting conversations. And if one of the ideas that he's proposing is really strange in terms of like, you know, just get rid of democracy altogether, let's just go to monarchy or whatever. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I can respect that, that there's a place for that. That's cool. And uh, yeah, he's just like playing a different game. As you say, like exit strategies, even like Bitcoin, economic ec- exit strategy, you know, um, crypto, monarchy, whatever, Mudana, Mundana is a political exit strategy, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> Good on him. Well, he's not, he's not proposing for Mundana because Mundana has a, has a revolution too. Like he says that it's not a good society, but he's, he's not advocating for Mundana. Is that because he's not the God King? <laughs> that, that, that's um, <laughs> point one. No, to be, to be generous to him, he says that, so when, like later in this, this parable, there are, there are revolutions in both Mundana and Mutopia, which improve both societies. He says, this is the best case scenario. Both the ruling groups are overthrown. In the case of Mundana, you have, you have a ready-made ruling class, and that's the intellectual liberal underground of Mundana, who were previously persecuted by the, the Tsar and the Tsar's secret police because these people have existed within an intellectual milieu where only good, beautiful, or true ideas are selected for. And like, we, we, we've been over my problems with that framing, but fine, we'll just accept that they've existed in this intellectual environment where good or beautiful ideas are selected for and they get into power and they rule well because they have been developing good ideas selected for truth. Like they're they're ruling on the basis of true ideas. That's as opposed to Mutopia where liberals were already in charge, but because of this dominant recessive uh, dynamic of ideas, they had no way of actually evaluating whether the ideas they were having were true or not. Which is back to what you were saying about pseudo-information. Because ideas in that context were only selected for based on whether they supported the, mm. the liberal power structure of Mutopia, you had no way of actually evaluating whether they were true or not. If they supported the power structure, then the Mutopian cathedral would take them up. He uses the example of climate change. He's like, okay, in Mutopia, climate alarmism promotes state power because it costs a lot of money it would lead to more funding for universities and journalists can talk about how bad it is so that's a dominant idea it's going to be selected for because it it provides a justification for expanding mutopian state power he says in this context maybe it's true maybe it's not but that's not actually being evaluated for again in like in the real world i just think there's you can have ideas evaluated on the basis of both whether it selects for uh, an expansion of power and whether it's true or not. I don't think it's mutually exclusive in quite the way that yeah. he seems to be intimating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's but, plenty of ideas that are but, anyway, so, prominent because they're true. 
like um, Maxwell's equations, yeah. pretty fucking common in pretty common use. Um, yeah. Yeah, and and those equations are selected for on their truth value. And their usefulness. So you could, yeah. I think he did address this earlier in the essay when he said that even in the most totalitarian regimes, they, they have maths, science, and engineering that works. So, for example, in the North Korean regime, like, incredibly intellectually repressive, mm. but when it comes to rocket technology, they want rockets that fly and preferably hit the United States of America <laughs> with big, beautiful atomic <laughs> payloads, which also work. So they so do like they, physics. They still, <laughs> want, they still want engineering and physics that work. So I think actually he did address that Maxwell's equations yeah. criticism earlier in this piece. But what about social? Are there social dominant social ideas that are dominant because they're true? This is like this gets into a much more difficult <laughs> question of what you regard as true. So I I would say at the very least, there are like this sounds silly to say, but it's important to bear in mind. Yeah? There are certain behaviors which reliably lead to certain results, and insofar as you value those results, then you probably value these ideas. So, not stealing stuff reliably leads to a more stable ability for people within a social group to accumulate wealth and be more secure and trust and that sort of thing. Yeah, da- it can have all sorts of downstream effects, like big differences in income, which themselves lead to instability. But you're probably going to have more stable societies where people minimize how much they steal from each other than those you know where stealing now that you is mentioned this, Jack. not only neutral, but those where it's income. Can we try to find like some obscure... Or murdering each can other. Can we try to find some obscure like online writer who actually does actively advocate for stealing off people? Yeah, Karl Marx. Oh, no. Wait, sorry. That's Keynes. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and the, uh, the Royal Bank of... The, the Reserve Bank of Australia. <laughs> Fucking... No good, no good fucking thieves. <laughs> Next episode, it's going to be the latest RBA report. We'll just read through it and do a running we'll just commentary. just read through and explain why it's a bunch of pseudoscience nonsense. You know they show graphs. I've been reading, I've been re- I'm not going to go on too much of a rant about this, but I've <laughs> yes, been reading will. like Keynesian economics. <laughs> That's not and, true. You're going to have, you're gonna have a good the RBA's, the RBA's explainers. The RVA's explainers, and they show graphs of like, it's called a aggregate demand, aggregate supply. You know, they show graphs without axes, like without like units and stuff. Yeah, you don't need those. And they say, this is aggregate demand. And it's like, yeah, but what, like, how come you put aggregate demand and supply on the same graph? And why, if, and what is going up? And why is GDP here? And it's like, and you know that if you graph some, if you graph something on the y axis against something on the x axis, you're actually saying that. The thing on the y-axis is a function of the thing that's happening on the x-axis. So what's the equation and why is that a function? And they just never explain this. And maybe that's just because I'm reading like high-level stuff and there's people who go into the nitty-gritty details of it and I'm just a pleb. But I think if anybody, you know, just if anybody ever shows you a graph and they haven't labeled the axes and put units on it, like you just got to like slap them in the face. Yeah, I'm, I will fully support you. Slapping the RBA. Yeah, like... <laughs> I don't, I don't, it's not a matter of reading high level stuff or not. Like if you, if you are showing a graph, label your fucking axes. <laughs> and if you don't do that, I will come to your house in Minecraft and hug you. 
And, you know, don't say, oh, well, it's an explainer from the RBA, you know, like it's supposed to be for the general public. Blah, blah, blah. blah. Like, label you it's fucking like the general public wants you to label the fucking access, you piece of shit. Like the general public isn't full of a bunch of idiots. I didn't know the RBA did this, but this, this is a this is beyond a pet peeve. This is I'll a send you the explainers of how they try to explain how the economy works. It is just it is disgusting. Yeah, a bunch of idiots. It is repulsive. I would I'd rather see them print a swastika than an unlabeled graph. Like that's just, that's just repulsive. <laughs> Truly repulsive. And these people have been through the fucking cathedral education system. Fiat cucks. <laughs> 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 I, you know what? Fuck it. I'm on board with Yarvin. I, I'm I fucking pro Yarvin. Let's bring in the crypto monarchist Yarvin state. Man, I didn't know that they were they were printing graphs with that. It's fucking access. ridiculous. Damn, it's that's ridiculous. that's really it's disappointing. I'm not going to ever pay taxes <laughs> if it's going towards unlabeled graphs. That is, oh, I will go to prison for unpaid taxes if that's if that's where my tax dollar. Those like okay, fine. Take my taxes and invade a country on the other side of the earth that has nothing to do with us. Fine. But, but don't you dare use a single dollar I've paid to print an unlabeled graph. <laughs> it's just like, you're fu- you're just like you dare. Yeah, you can, you can, you can uh, buy helicopters for some bomb some foreign villages regime. In a, bomb some innocent yeah, people yeah, in another fine, country. Whatever. whatever. But print a goddamn unlabeled graph. No units. I, I'll be calling for a revolt. Goddamn revolt. I, I will be organizing a revolt. <laughs> and we'll be we'll be marching for this for the specific reason of in Minecraft burning down the parliament in Canberra so that we can in, institute a new one based around the principle of putting of labeling graphs. But we still we like, still just Parliament could do whatever else at once. I don't care. But And just so you know, we're not we're not getting rid of all graphs must we're be. We're not getting rid of the Keynesian economics. Like I still want to like when I become the all powerful czar, I want to steal your wealth through monetary expansion. But at least when I put out my pseudoscience nonsense, I will label my graphs. No, you see, I'm as a ruler, I would be politics agnostic. I only care about graphs. <laughs> <laughs> you can have whichever have whatever political system you want. Whatever. I just want you to label your axes. Your single single issue. <laughs> your politics are really not single my issue voter here, Jay. <laughs> single issue party. Crypto Nukes Australia has has just want you to Crypto label Nukes your Australia axes. has three core pillars. One, crypto, two, nukes, and three labeling the fucking axes. <laughs> Labeled, labeled axes. axes. We're bringing back labeled <laughs> axes to this bitch. <laughs> We've come up with a new policy for nuclear Queensland. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> We're now a three-issue party. We're a sophisticated party. We even have an icon now, thanks to, um, thanks to, I don't know, who sent it to me? Was it uh, on Discord? Trent, I think. Trent created a cool. J-Man's made oh, a J-Man? bunch of um, J-Man? flags for us. And Trent, Trent is making this uh this like crown badge, yeah, the crown badge, with, yeah, Trent. with mushroom clouds it's and so Bitcoin, good. Bitcoin logos and, a little and emu stuff and like kangaroo that. and shit. It's so good. <laughs> oh, it's even. Oh, I just noticed it's got like it's. He's put like a little uh a little dumbbell on it. That's so funny. <laughs> That's awesome. It's got like dumbbells, SE fives, dolphins. That's so fucking good. It's, it's there's it's a tiger really on it. There's a tiger <laughs> emblem on the Bitcoin logo. That's so good. Yeah, shout out to everybody on the Discord, but especially the people who are getting into the emojis and the fucking icons and and, and shit. It's awesome. Coat of arms for the for the show for Crypto Nukes Australia. Shout out to Nam Tam who made a 
a black metal version of our theme. Oh, song. nice. We we should use that as like the outro or something. <laughs> do do the classic intro, and then and then Actually, do the, gonna, yeah, I'll do, do for the, this episode. Do the I'll outro, the heavy outro. metal outro. That's cool. Yeah. Send us, you know, like if you guys want to. Okay, okay, are so we finished with the with the with the essay, and we can just do a little bit of community shout out? No, no, we've still got some okay. stuff to go. Fuck you, community. No, no, don't fuck you. We fucking love you. <laughs> I, ta- I take that back. <laughs> <laughs> We're deleting the Discord. Okay, he's got. Okay, so why can't the cathedral be repaired? So this is this is his um. He's not going to try to reform this system. He's going to overthrow it personally. So he says we can't repair the cathedral because the cathedral's not actually even the problem. So the problem really lies in the the factors which make the cathedral operate the way it does. He uses an analogy of a beautiful, clear mountain lake which gets covered in green algae, and this happens because there's there's a pig farm nearby and pig manure is being dumped into a stream feeding this lake. Uh, you know, this, this is a, a subtle analogy, but the algae growing in the lake, that's the cathedral. So what, what is m- allowing the cathedral to grow? Well, this, this pig shit is, is a metaphor for power leaking. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. From, <laughs> in addition to fiat currency, <laughs> it's also power leaking from the dominant power structure. <laughs> <laughs> but mostly, mostly fiat currency. currency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so why does it leak? So he says that it's because most most of society is run on the basis of a bureaucracy, of a civil service, and this civil service seeks to externalise all responsibility. Now, why is this the case? <laughs> well, no manager in this system has any sense of responsibility. <laughs> They're not actually managers because they have no sense of initiative. They're, just, initiative. They're just exception managers. So everything is run by a process and you've got a manager the there exception handlers to <laughs> fix a problem if, if some sort of problem arises. The government just in runs in Java. This process. It's IO exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually just a series of computers running Java. Printing Hello World. There are no humans employed by the state. <laughs> they just pay the computers. Yeah, you could just like feel the 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 um the the uh the intense vitriol Yarvin has for public servants <laughs> coming through his shot. Like one too many bad DMV experiences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just goes fucking crazy about his like getting his license renewed and he just crazy. waited in line for Centrelink for too long, decided to become an anxious mold bug. <laughs> that was his supervillain moment. Whilst he was at UC Berkeley, he he got sick of waiting in line at Centrelink, so he, he went crazy and and started talking shit about academics. Yeah, he was he was at he was at UC Berkeley in the US, but he was still drawing on Centrelink, and the Australian government said no to him, and that's when he became an just mold bug. Yeah, yeah, that's Centrelink. That's why we should abolish Centrelink. <laughs> just- should go to zero. <laughs> get rid of it. That's why I think we should get rid of Centrelink so we don't have any more Curtis Yarvin supervillain moments. <laughs> it's just a liability. They're creating the problem. <laughs> I'm running for office in Australia and I expect you all to vote for me. It's, and my one, my one issue that I will become an MP on the basis of is getting rid of Centrelink. <laughs> Instantly elected. Just, and I won't replace it with anything. I'll just delete it. 
<laughs> just one day to the next. <laughs> I will be the delete Centrelink party. <laughs> just overnight, just millions of Australians just no longer have that income. Like, yeah, should have bought Bitcoin. <laughs> Can't have, it, don't don't have enough, enough food to eat. That's it. Don't have any housing? <laughs> Buy some crypto, little bitches. Yeah. But they'll they work will. For they me. will because it's, uh, I reckon it's in this their is, interest. This, this issue has broad to appeal. To have more freedom. It's, it's completely in to their interest. Have more, to delete to get rid of M- Mencius Molbug 2.0. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> bureaucracy seeks to always externalise responsibility. So what they do is they go to the cathedral and this is this is where the power is leaking from so instead of anyone in the bureaucracy or the the civil service making decisions what they do is they'll outsource policy decisions to to universities to university professors and they'll outsource effectively pr and criticism to journalists and because these two institutions making up the cathedral academia and journalism are now sharing in the leaked power of of government, their interests become aligned with government. They seek to to expand the power of government because that is going to expand their own power, and that is the coordinating the coordinating function. So he's he's now found this organising function that he was asking about at the beginning of this essay. It's this power leak from the civil service, which which is what keeps the the constituents of the cathedral moving in intellectual lockstep in terms of fixing this he says okay you can't reform it because fundamentally the form of government we have at the moment is one which leaks power the type of government funnily enough that doesn't leak power is a monarchy (laughs) (laughs) never leaks power never has any monarchy ever leaked power never happened so the thing is, okay, so a criticism I have here, he talks about the iron law of monarchy, which I forget which thinker. It was one of the Italian Machiavellians who, who came up. It might have been Gaetano Mosca, but I'm not sure. I've certainly read about this idea in James Burnham's The Machiavellians, which apparently Curtis Yarvin really likes as a book, and I like it too. I'd, I'd recommend that book. I think it's a really interesting one. But... There's this idea of the iron law of oligarchy where basically all societies over time are going to start moving towards an oligarchic system of government where you have a relatively small group of people making decisions for the majority. And he says that in democracy this happens and you get a power leak. However, I'm not sure why that wouldn't also be the case for a monarchy. So why wouldn't a monarchy also says, revert to this or obey this iron law of of um, oligarchy? So initially, for argument's sake, you have this absolute monarch who who doesn't want to leak power because I don't know they just they just don't. But over time, they get advisors. They need to delegate responsibility things because you just you can't run a whole society as one person, no matter how how optimized you are. There's too much information throughput. You have to have some sort of hierarchy where you distribute yeah, control. Yeah, yeah, and through that process, you'd probably also get an oligarchy arising. Yeah, I don't know what fucking that, planet like that's the a power is living living on. He doesn't um, see this. Yeah, 
With other places where I've disagreed with him, I could really try to steel man his position. Squint. And yeah, I don't agree yeah. with the steel man. And oftentimes, like in this episode, as I'm sure listeners have noticed, He's done a great my job. steel mans have kind of stretched very generously what Yarvin's no, been you've saying. Done a really but good in job. this case, it's pretty hard to even steel man that. You've done a really good job of uh, impersonating Jack as well. Good work, GVT. Could you... Um... Thank you. My name is actually Curtis. Yeah. I'm a 50-year-old man living in the United States impersonating a 30-year-old Australian podcast. <laughs> Whilst trying to get Centrelink for my incomplete Berkeley PhD. Well, just, just for everything. Is <laughs> just trying to get the NDIS money <laughs> from, from Australia. <laughs> He's just all about hitting up, hitting up the Australian <laughs> welfare state. <laughs> and then advocating a monarchy. Why do they keep knocking me back? <laughs> Fuck. Exactly. A foreign state's welfare state keeps knocking me back whenever I ask for money. So we need a monarchy. That's actually the motivating factor behind why he's a monarchist. Because the Australian state won't give him those Centrelink bucks. Those Anthony Albanese bucks. Albo bucks. Uh, so what was I saying? Oh, yeah, this whole thing about how monarchies don't leak power, I just don't think is true. I think it's flat out false. Maybe somewhere else in his philosophy, he explains how in his particular conception of monarchy, that doesn't happen. So at least, okay, so this is a combination of me, think, me thinking out loud and me being generous. So his conception of a monarch does seem to be much more in line with that of a CEO rather than Louis XVI. That's cool, but Jack, Jack, how, so, how... How hmm. can he simultaneously say that and then not say that it's not a totalitarian state or like a, an authoritarian state? Like how can you have a power structure that's invested in one like top pinnacle CEO or executive or whatever you want to call it that does not leak power and yet is also not a totalitarian state of some sort? Like to me, I mean, I may have just got to read his book when he finally published it, but to me that's like... Those are contradictory statements. Uh, so I guess we need to separate out authoritarian and yeah, totalitarian. Sure. So I think you can have, like, basically all authoritarian states except totalitarian states are not totalitarian. Totalitarianism is something very specific, wherein you have an absolute state which, which encompasses all aspects of society. Whereas you can have an authoritarian state where, where decisions are made by a limited group of people, but there can exist society outside of that, that state's purview. A, a, a major distinction between authoritarianism and totalitarianism. I don't think he's advocating for totalitarianism. No, but he is author his authoritarianism. Yeah, 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 very explicitly. Like, this is, he's not hiding this for, like for listeners who haven't read Curtis Yarvin. He certainly doesn't hide the fact that he wants an authoritarian state. Like the state under a monarchy that agrees with what he his perspective of the world is. In some of the other things of his that I've read, he seems to talk about the monarch more as like maybe almost like for Americans, like a super FDR. Like imagine the powers that FDR accumulated, but go way further. In some ways, like a super president, like a president that can do way more but you can get rid of if you need to but at the same time he's like, living in la la land 
Yeah, it's I'm I'm trying really hard to steel man this one. In part, I'm not doing as good a job because I just haven't read enough Curtis. I'm, I'm not putting in any effort right now to steal man. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. No, the, the dynamic of one of us criticizing and one of us steel manning, I think, has served us well in the past. I think. Okay, so, but okay, so let's let's just say like, okay, Yar- Yarvin, what we'll 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 give you your opportunity. Let's just say you get like one of the states to run your experiment where you get to like say set up the monarchy um for that state or whatever secede from the union and see what happens like presumably does he just think that the monarch will do all the things that yarvin thinks are the right things to do because what if yarvin disagrees with what the monarch wants to do i guess Maybe it's, it's it's not a bad point you make. Okay, so <laughs> because it, it always just seems like when maybe, people okay, okay. so all right, all right, all right. How about how about this? How about this? So back to what he was saying about the selection functions for different ideas. So in a state that leaks power, you're going to have these dominant and recessive selective dynamics more strongly and what that power what that leaked power does to a marketplace of ideas is it distorts the selection functions such that ideas are not selected for on the basis of whether they're true or useful no whether they're true or not they're selected for on the basis of supporting current power structures of the power that is leaking into that marketplace of ideas so I guess if you have a system which doesn't leak power, the marketplace of ideas will be selecting for ideas more in the way that, for example, the mathematical marketplace of ideas selects for ideas. It'll select for them on the basis of truth. Okay. Which naturally means that they would be the same as Curtis Yarvin's <laughs> ideas. <laughs> I t- how does that sound? Like I'm, ca- I'm just ad libbing here. Like, I don't actually know if that's what he said. I'm, I because what that's if my marketplace of ideas? To, okay, and does that. will the monarch? What if the monarch just doesn't? What if the monarch just says, "Yeah, well, I don't care if that's what's true. Like, I don't like it," and just eradicates the idea. Well, you're you're, you're beginning to hit on my problems with monarchism. <laughs> <laughs> and what if and what if one of those ideas are Curtis Yarvin's ideas? <laughs> <laughs> like to me whenever i hear yeah but, but they, these are the sorts of things that i can't it's it's just much harder to steal man. whenever i hear so, somebody advocating authoritarianism they're always okay, just so he's he's a big fan of he does he really admires for example deng xiaoping right. in china china's an interesting political example so china has not really been able to solve the so-called bad emperor problem in a particularly good way in that the, pro- the problem is the emperor in china <laughs> At least, okay, so let's, let's even just say, okay, in communist China, when they have good leadership, it's fairly well run. Like, there, there are plenty of things there that I would struggle with, like the, the restricted freedom of speech and things like that. But in terms of, say, pulling millions of people out of poverty, modernizing their infrastructure and things like that, the Chinese rulers have done a good job. And when the leadership is good and they have that much power, things 
function reasonably well. However, when you get, as you were saying, this like this bad ruler who just says, okay, even though this idea might be true, I don't like it and I'm not going to do it. What do you do then? Is it some sort of function that and forces yeah. error correction on the, on the monarch? Yeah, and that, that doesn't have to be elections or something. Like, that doesn't have to be a democratic error correction. And isn't violent, or does it have to be a violent overthrowing of the monarch? And, and then my... So, okay, my, my point is basically just that... Maybe you just, like, put, you put, one, you put a shock <laughs> collar on them, and whenever they make a bad decision, you just give them a zap. Blow their head off. <laughs> yeah, or you get a <laughs> shotgun collar. <laughs> like out of Which sore. just blows their, <laughs> blows their head off as soon as they make a bad decision. So there's no room for learning. You just make a mistake next. and die. <laughs> Who's up next? Who's going to volunteer to be the monarch next? Nobody puts their fucking hand up. Just turns into anarchy. <laughs> um, yeah, no, my, I, my point was basically just uh, whenever I hear an authoritarian advocating authoritarianism, it always just seems to me like they're just advocating for them to be the authoritarian ruler. And they're just saying like... Yeah, which would be mad if I were the authoritarian ruler. I agree with everything I believe. It's crazy the amount of overlap there is. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, no, no. What we really need is like some strong man president that just has all of my point of view. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anybody who disagrees, like they don't want to actually like submit their uh, ideas yeah, exactly. to the brute force of criticism by like social discourse. What they want to do is they want the political system to enforce it on everybody else. Which means, like, I, th- I think, like, at the end of the day, if you think that your your ideas are good, put them out there in the world and see what happens. And if you need to enforce them at, like, the end of a rifle, <laughs> then maybe they're not actually very good ideas. Which actually, so Curtis Yarvin has been submitting his ideas for a long time to public Which criticism. Is good. And he's been publishing them. For twenty years, the the comments section on on Grey Mirror, like on his Substack, is yeah. very very active, and there are there are people there who are really engaging with the ideas that he's put out and criticizing them, and that's cool. Uh, yeah, that's great. And so, do you think that would I want to live in Curtis Yarvin's monarchist society? No, yeah. but I am glad that we do have people who are putting out like, very unpopular ideas. And 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 encouraging people to engage with them. I do My think that's valuable. My last question is: are you, are you just trolling, Yarvin? Is Yarvin just is he just doing the um the bad guy public like all publicity is good pu- publicity, and he's just like just trolling to get more publicity? No, I I do. How much of it? How what what component? Like okay, maybe it's not all, but like what component do you also think that he's just like a little bit like? All right, I'm going to say something provocative just because I know that like just to put a thorn in the side of this, this whole thing. I think you, you can be reflexively contrarian without, without subscribing to the all publicity yeah. is good publicity. I think those things are separable. So I think he's, he's almost certainly someone who just enjoys being in opposition. Getting a rise out of people. And that's, like, that's, that's fine. I definitely feel elements of that in myself. Really? I can definitely... No. Sympathize no. and empathize. <laughs> what? <laughs> you, Jack? Nah. <laughs> so I think he's definitely temperamentally inclined to disagree with what most people believe. But I also I don't think he's being insincere. Yeah. I 
I'd say he does really believe what he's saying here. And he has had blowback from it, actually. He's so I think he's been he was invited to a bunch of developer conferences in the yeah. software world and had to leave because there was outcry among participants that he was he was um part of it. And not these were not events about politics. These were events about software and he would be talking in a technical capacity, but he was he was dropped from the ticket for his political beliefs. So yeah, he has true. actually suffered consequences for for being so public with beliefs which are so far outside the Overton window. So I I really don't think he's being insincere. I think he believes these things and I think he's meaningfully trying to solve problems, which is why despite the fact that I don't agree with plenty of what he says, I enjoy reading him and I do take him seriously because I think he is in good faith trying to solve problems. Yeah. 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 He's an interesting thinker at any rate. I'm, I'm enjoying reading some of his Bitcoin stuff. I'm not convinced about the monarchy stuff yet, but yeah, it's still, <laughs> still interesting. That'll come, Levi. It's a natural consequence. Of that'll come. That'll come. Yeah. It's like becoming a monarchist. DCA, DCAing Bitcoin and then you become a crypto monarchist. <laughs> <laughs> and then you subscribe to Grey Mirror. <laughs> you buy your first ASIC and immediately become a monarchist. <laughs> what do you reckon? Have we finished? Are there any other major ideas that you think are worth covering? Yeah, I'd say we've, we've gone through all this. I would be very open to doing more Yarvin, particularly particularly if he finally comes out with that fucking book that he keeps promising. If he comes out with the book. Because that would be, be good because it. then we can more holistically engage with his ideas Rather than yeah. uh, talk, talking about this article in isolation, plus like me with my goldfish memory trying to remember what I read about him over the past, past like, twelve years, ten years. Yeah. So, uh, like, yeah, uh, props yeah, yeah. to Yarvin for being a weirdo and putting your thoughts out there for like such a long time and sticking sticking to uh, a <laughs> like being being a sincere advocate of an alternative opinion. Um, yeah, props to him also on his technical accomplishments that's quite impressive um i hope that he writes a book so he can address and maybe like if he writes his book he can also talk about like what things he still thinks and what things he's maybe learnt on and moved on from yeah so curtis if you're listening yeah write yeah that book, mate. if you're listening come on the show join the discord we can read we can read carlisle together <laughs> uh, yeah so i would recommend reading this yeah read great like, this is really this is a really short essay yeah. like this is really quick to get yeah, like he could have easily have just he's read he's a essay. really really clever guy who's extremely well read who has thought about these things a lot he's come out with opinions that are a very different from not even just mainstream opinions but the direction of mainstream opinions he's quite directionally different from most other people you're going to hear He's tried to go off axis. And while ultimately I, I don't agree with his conclusions, and I, t- I don't agree with actually many of his, his diagnoses of, of problems, <laughs> just, it's really I valuable. Just really just disagree to... with everything the guy says, really. <laughs> no, I think it's really, really valuable to read, read things written by people who are smart and acting in good faith, because I yeah. do think he's, he's writing in good faith, yeah. because it, 
it forces you to examine your own worldview. And so when you read something written by Yarvin, something that he has thought about, and which he's telling you not because he's trying to, not because he has some ulterior motive, but because I think he really does care about bringing about a better political system. Yeah, he's not, to, he's not trying to sell you some shit in this essay. He's actually exploring ideas. You have to explain to yourself why you don't agree with something. And I think there is real value to yeah. that. Um, yeah, so I, I, I'd recommend reading this. Some of, yeah, I've enjoyed reading some of his stuff. Yep, it's good. It's interesting. It's outside of my normal reading. Let's, let's say that. <laughs> it's an yeah. understatement. <laughs> yeah. And also, when you read it, or if you read it, don't be fucking lame and get three sentences in and go, oh, this guy is literally Hitler. I don't like it. And then stop. No, if you disagree with it, and you like, probably you will, actually work out why. Don't be a fucking cuck and just say, oh, I don't like it because I don't like it. Work out why. (laughs) (laughs) That's important. It is, Jack. (laughs) It's very important. (laughs) Anyway, I don't don't have much more to say. Next week, we're, um, I think we'll be doing Storm of Steel by Jung. That's exciting. We were initially, yeah, we were initially going to do Storm of Steel this week and then Yavin. too slow a reader. But. Like we just like we need more time to read read Storm of Steel. So we'll move on from monarchism to next week, Junger talking about the First World War and getting really shot weird. repeatedly. Um all right. I'm really looking forward to talking about Junger. That guy was a f- fucking yeah, maniac. Crazy. All right. Thanks for listening. Join the Discord. Um, that's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs>